This is the L3 Leadership Podcast, episode number 104. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 104 of the L3 Leadership Podcast. My name is Doug Smith, and I'm the founder of L3 Leadership. We're a leadership development company in the city of Pittsburgh devoted to helping you grow to your maximum potential as a leader. If you're new to this podcast, we're committed to bringing you three episodes every single month. One will be from our leadership events that we host on a monthly basis. One a month, you'll hear me interview a high-level leader, and then once a month, you'll get a personal leadership lesson by me as well. If you've been with us for a while and listening to the podcast, one way that you can really help us out is by hopping on iTunes and searching for us in the iTunes store. All you have to do is search L3 Leadership. And once you find us, you can leave a rating and review. It takes about two minutes and it really helps us grow our audience organically. So if you could do that for us, we'd really appreciate it. This specific episode is from our special event series. We recently hosted a Pirates game and tailgate with Sean Amirati, who I've interviewed for this podcast before. Uh, before I introduce Sean, I just want to thank our two sponsors for this event. Uh, the first sponsor was the Pittsburgh Kids Foundation, which is a great organization led by my friends Brad and Beth Henderson. And they work with youth ministries and churches all over Western PA and do great work there. They do youth camps, youth retreats, and just make a huge impact on teenagers in the area. And they also do a ton of work in Haiti, and uh, they take groups down to Haiti all the time. And uh, you, if you are interested in either of those things, I really encourage you to check them out at pittsburghkidsfoundation.org. Again, just a, a phenomenal organization. Our other sponsor was Pop Invasion. They were our photographers for the night and did a phenomenal job. We just posted the pictures on Facebook. Uh, but they're a creative agency. They can do anything that you need them to do. Video, photography, uh, written content, SEO, web development, graphic design, etc. And so really encourage you to check them out at popinvasion.com. Uh, it's a company led by my friend Marta Greca, and she's just a phenomenal young leader as well. So that being said, let's jump right into Sean's talk. Uh, again, this episode comes to you from our special event series. And we recently had the privilege of having Sean Amirati speak at our event. And if you're unfamiliar with Sean, he's an entrepreneur turned venture capitalist and venture capitalist and professor, and he's actually built and sold three of his own companies. He was actually, one of his companies was LinkedIn's first acquisition, which is really, really interesting. And he's also a professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon University. If you've been with us before, we did interview Sean for the podcast in episodes number 96 and 97. And I really encourage you, if uh, if you enjoy this talk, go back and listen to those episodes. They're absolutely uh, phenomenal. And I'll include links to both of those in the show notes. And so this specific talk, we broke Sean's talk from our event into two separate episodes. In this episode, you'll hear him give an overview of his book, The Science of Growth. The tagline for the book is how Facebook beat Friendster and nine other startups left the rest in the dust. And uh, it's a phenomenal book. And Sean was generous enough to give all the attendees a free copy of his book and he signed it for them. Uh, He's just phenomenal. But this is a fantastic book that I really encourage you to read. Uh, We talk about it in depth in the interviews that I did with him, uh, but you'll get to hear him give an overview to today, and it's a phenomenal talk. And so you'll get to hear about his book in this episode. And then in episode number 105, uh, we had a question and answer session with Sean, and you'll get to listen to that. So again, if you'd like to purchase a copy of Sean's book, connect with him on any of the social media outlets, and see the show notes, you can check all of that out at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 104. That being said, let's just jump right into Sean's talk, and I'll be back at the end with a few announcements. Enjoy. So I'm going to try to talk loud enough that we don't need the mic, but if you in the back of the room can't hear me, just sort of give me a signal so that I know. Uh, 30 minutes of just watching my 
talk would pre- probably be pretty boring. So let me know if you can't hear me. Um, so I'm really excited to be here tonight. Um, most of the time when I talk to organizations, I try to talk about things that I consider to be truth without exactly explaining and connecting all the dots to them. Uh, so one of the things that I say in every single class that I teach at CMU, so whether that's the exec ed class that Doug took part of, or that's any of the different graduate courses that I teach at CMU, is the following statement. Entrepreneurs create the world the way the world ought to be. Right? Because I, and, and so here's the, here's the thing that I think is really important here, and I apologize to you in the front row, but I'm trying to get close enough that they in the back can hear me as well. So entrepreneurs create the world the way the world ought to be. Right? And I believe that everybody, with this definition of entrepreneurship, I believe that everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, whether they know it or not. And so one of my goals at CMU and one of my goals as a venture capitalist is to try to get more people to apply this entrepreneurial mindset to what they're doing, right? Because if you think about, think about your, your favorite startup, think about the startup that jumps to mind first when I think about, so when I say the word startup or entrepreneur, right? Whether that's Uber or Airbnb or Google or Facebook, right? Each of those companies, some entrepreneur said, hey, you know what? There's this thing that I believe to be true, and I'm going to create a product and service that's going to make that true, and then I'm going to realize economic value through creating that product or service. And since I'm in a, in a group that's a little bit more um, Christian tonight, like where, where we have more believers in the room, um, so the next thing that I typically say is I believe everybody wants to be an entrepreneur because I believe everybody wants to create, but I don't spend a lot of time connecting those two dots for people. But in a room like this, just a point that I would make, right, is if you were to think about all the things that are remarkable about God, right, I think certainly forgiving our sins, there's a lot of things that would quickly roll off, but I'd say pretty quickly up there would be created the world, right, the sort of breathing life into each and every one of us, right? And so if we believe that that is part of what makes God remarkable and we believe that we're created in his image, then if we want people to live with the kind of purpose that we want from a professional occupation, then let's help them do it with this entrepreneurial mindset. And so I've basically spent most of the last five years trying to help people apply this entrepreneurial mindset. And one of the challenges that you have when you do that in a place like CMU is that people think there are entrepreneurs and there's everybody else, right? There's like, you know, there's like the 23-year-old brilliant kid in skinny jeans and a t-shirt. And then there's, you know, the 50-year-old executive working at BMW, right? And I think this is a distinction that has done a lot of disservice, right? Because I've had a lot of my students leave CMU and go work for BNY Mellon or go work for BMW and apply that same mindset. Some guys, like Dave here, are taking the leap, right? They're doing startups themselves, right? They're seeing things that are just broken about the way the world works, and they're creating products and services to build businesses around that, and I think that's absolutely amazing. But whatever you do, right, I think you can apply this entrepreneurial mindset to what you're doing. Um, so just to sort of uh, just to sort of add my story, so I did this three times myself, right? So three times I was I sort of took the, the crazy leap Dave's doing right now and actually 
tried to build companies and went with the highs and lows. So my wife was here, Samantha, she could give you like more context for how hard this really is. Um, we have friends of ours here who can tell you like it is that's a harder seat probably in many ways to sit through, right? But we went through these sort of ups and downs of building businesses. Um, and then I started thinking, okay, what I want to spend my time doing is convincing other people to do this. And so basically I wear a couple hats today. One is I invest in startups, right? So one is uh, I find startups, I invest in them, and then end up with very close relationships with those people, right? So, you know, join their board, spend time with them on a close basis, right? There's this next circle out, right, which is teaching um, people how to do it, and, and it's more of a kind of 1 to 50, 1 to 100 setting, right? And then the, the goal of the book, um, it was to try to do it on a, on a larger setting, right? How can we get this in front of even more people to help them apply this entrepreneurial mindset? And so I'm a huge fan of entrepreneurship, but I think it's also important to talk about the statistics behind it, right? Um, so uh, you might want to cover your ears for just the next minute, Dave, because you've already taken the leap. At this point, there's no turning back. Um, so, uh, but, but here, so Dun & Bradstreet will tell you that um, for every Dun & Bradstreet number that's requested, right? So if you want to get a bank account, if you want to get a loan, if you, basically if you want to be a business, you typically need a Dun & Bradstreet number. They'll tell you that for every five Dun & Bradstreet numbers that are requested, four of them are gone within the first year. Right? So we've got 20% success rate out of the first year. Of the 20% that make it out of year one, right, 20% of those will be around four years later. So we're talking about something with a 4% success rate. So I've just said in the last two slides that I'm spending all of my time trying to convince people to take this entrepreneurial mindset and that I'm doing something that, and I'm advocating a career path that has a 4% success rate. Um, and so you could ask yourself, like, well, how do you look at yourself in the mirror? Um, what, I think, what I think is important is, over the last five years, we as a group of people who teach entrepreneurship have gotten much, much better at helping with that first phase, that idea to being around a year later. Um, and in the tech world, we call that product market fit, right? So product market fit is this idea of being in a market that solves a real problem for an identifiable group of customers, right? And it turns out that this is the first failure point for most startups, right? Most startups fail in that first year because they build something that nobody wants. And actually, I find that way more depressing than even the 4% statistic, right? Because if I said most startups failed because they couldn't build what they set out to build, it would make entrepreneurship this really fair activity, Right? It would mean that the smartest people who work the hardest are the most successful. But in fact, if you look at the numbers, right, it's actually much, it's much more depressing than that. It's actually that what they set out to build, they build, and then nobody cares when they're done with it. And so over the last couple of years, we've gotten really good at teaching people to stop building things that nobody wants. And I would suspect if you looked at kind of longitudinal data over the last, say, 20 years of entrepreneurial activity... The, the success rate on that first 80% failure rate has gone down dramatically because we've gotten better at teaching people to build things that people actually want instead of build things that nobody wants, right? And I think this is really good because, again, I think entrepreneurship is this thing of creating products and services that make the world the way it ought to be. So the more of those that we can do, the better. I also think that people have significantly more purpose regardless of what their professional 
uh, occupation is where they're actually doing a startup or working in a big company if they're taking this entrepreneurial approach to it. And by the way, those of you who are working for big companies, I actually think your statistics are much, much more depressing than 4%. You're just much better at covering them up than startups are, right? Startups have this sort of obvious failure point. Um, so we've gotten really good at doing this. I uh, the, the methodology that many of you may be familiar with, it's called the Lean Startup Methodology, right? This was really, I think, uh, been a group of, of academics and practitioners who have done a nice job teaching people how to go from idea to product market fit. The Lean Entrepreneurship course at, at CMU, I teach and, and have really enjoyed it. Um, and so how we've gotten really good at doing it, right, is this concept. How many of you have heard, have heard the concept MVP? MVP, not like the baseball MVP, but minimally viable product? Just, just one, okay. Um, so MVP is this concept from the Lean Startup where you build just a little bit of a product, you show it to people, and they tell you, like, they either like it or don't like it, and you iterate based on what you've shown, right? And it's this, this idea of showing people a little bit of a product or service instead of locking yourself in a room for 10 months or a year, building something, showing it to them, and them yawning, right? The idea is that you start to show them little bits of it over time, and as you expose them to more and more of the product, you decrease the chance of showing them something that they don't care about, right? Um, and so uh, this, that's what you kind of do, and you go through these iterative, what we call build, measure, learn cycles, right? So um, you build your minimally viable product or service, you get customer feedback from that. You iterate on that, and you and you go through these through these cycles. Um, if you're familiar with the movie Back to the Future, that's sort of where my cultural references end. Uh, but this is sort of like the flux capacitor of the Lean Startup. Right? It's this, this kind of concept. Okay, release a little bit of a product, get feedback on it, iterate and improve as you go through these cycles. Um, uh, and you keep going through these iterations until you get to product market fit. But here's the thing. Remember what I told you entrepreneurs do, right? Entrepreneurs want to create the world the way the world ought to be. That doesn't mean getting to product market fit. But you don't start a startup with the goal of, man, I hope I can get this product to be a good product in a good market, right? You start a business or you, or you create a product to change the world, right? And so one of the things that I started to struggle with a couple years ago is, okay, we've gotten really good at this first phase, this idea to product market fit. But there's still all these other failure points along the way from having a good product in a good market to actually making the world the way it ought to be. So I started struggling with this question of like, okay, so we've gotten good at teaching this first part. How are we going to make people effective at finishing the journey that we sent them off on, but going from product market fit to scaling up? And so um, what I ended up doing with my students at CMU is we took pairs of companies um, where they had gotten to product market fit, in the loosest sense of the word, at about the same time, but one took off and one didn't, right? So why did YouTube take off and Rever didn't? Why are there tens of thousands of Teslas on the road and Fisker filed for bankruptcy? I would guess everybody in the room has a Facebook account. I guess nobody in the room has a Friendster account, right? So as we looked at these pairs of companies, the goal was, can we see common patterns where after they achieve product market fit, you know, the ones that took off did things differently than the ones that stalled out, right? And so how many of you are familiar with a book called Good to Great or Built to Last? Yeah, this is, so th- this is admittedly not a unique 
approach to doing research. It's a, it's a pretty common approach. The thing I think that's important and that, that Jim does really well, and I think all of this type of research does really well, is it avoids you selecting on the dependent variable. Right? So if you only looked at YouTube, Facebook, Tumblr, for example, and you ignored the, the pairwise companies, you wouldn't know if actually companies that succeeded and companies that failed did that or not, right? So if you have successful and failures and you look at what they did that's different, hopefully it avoids you just seeing things that, that everybody does. So the easy example of this would be if you only looked at all the successful companies, you could definitively say that to scale up a company, you need to have at least an employee, because every company that took off had an employee, right? It would also turn out that every company that failed had employees, so that might not be that predictive, right? Now, um, the, the list of the companies are primarily but not exclusively internet companies. That's 100% a function of this research being done at Carnegie Mellon, right? Like, the stu- the, it was the care- pairs of companies that were studied were picked by the people who were doing this work for free, um, who were doing all the research. So we did these pairs of companies, and then we took five companies where it was hard to figure out who you pick as the pair. And what we said is, we'll use these to reinforce the things we observe, but we won't, um, we won't add things if the only places we see it are these five companies. Right? So Google is an, an easy example of this. You either have to pick like 17 companies to compare Google with, or nobody. Right? And so we end up just deciding to say, okay, we're just going to look at Google as an independent case study. And, and where it reinforces best practices we're observing, then we'll include them. But we won't add things that we only see in a place like Google. Um, Twitter, similarly. So, so we went through and we had these sort of 10 pairs of companies plus these five case studies. And we ended up with um, realizing that uh, the, instead of this two-step thing, idea to product market fit, product market fit to scale, we ended up breaking the, this process down into three steps. And these are the three steps of the book. So I'm going to sort of walk through these at a very high level. And then I, I think we're going to try to get it back to Q&A so that you can ask me questions about what you want. But the first step, what we realized is like before you can even start thinking about scaling, it's a little more nuanced than product market fit. There's actually four things that we believed were important, right? So before you even think about product market fit, I would argue that there's kind of a problem founder fit thing, which is, how does this problem resonate with the person who has it? Because one of the things that you realize as entrepreneurs, to see the world the way the world ought to do, ought to be and create it, if everybody believed the world ought to look that way, then you have to ask yourself, why hasn't the business always already been created? And conversely, uh, if you believe the world ought to be that way and it won't, you'll probably still fail, even if you have a really good idea, right? So there's this sort of unique insight where you're kind of contrarian and yet also correct, that I think is important before you get to anything else. So we have this kind of founder's core vision. And then we decoupled the product market fit as two different things. One, how scalable is the idea, right? And then does it actually solve a real problem? So is this a large enough idea to be worth the time you're investing into it? And then does this actually solve a problem for the people you're targeting? And then this last step, uh, excellent first interaction, what we came to observe is that towards the tail end of being confident that you're solving a real problem for a, for a defined market, there's actually making sure that the first time you pick up that product and interact with it, the experience is remarkable. And the reason for this is when you start trying to scale, 
If there's a lot of friction in that first interaction with the product, people will, um, will immediately abandon it. Uh, and when I do this over, you know, like one day workshops and stuff, one of my favorite things to ask people is like, um, to tell stories of like people who unbox products, right? Have you ever, my kids do this. So like watch people like take stuff out of packaging, right? Like watch people take Play-Doh out of packaging. If you have kids, nod your head so that people realize this is a common thing. Like millions and millions of, of YouTube views watching people take products out of packaging. But it's not just YouTube, right? Like people our age watch people take real estate out of packaging. We just don't think of it as that, right? HGTV is basically the same thing. So this, how do you create this kind of first grade interaction that's so magical, so remarkable, that when you start focusing on those next two phases, you really don't have the friction to scale up? The next thing we talk about is, is for, um, I'm going to just zoom through these so we get to, uh, we get to the whole chart uh, for Q&A as well. So we talk through these kind of four what we call catalyzing events. And the idea is, once you have satisfied these prerequisites, the next question is, how do you dramatically accelerate scale, right? So you go from, okay, this solves a real problem to making lots of people aware of it. Because here's the thing, entrepreneurs create the world the way the world ought to be. It takes the world some time to catch up. And these catalyzing events become things that help the world catch up, right? And so whether this is like events that are larger, than, than you, so you know, Airbnb going to the DNC convention when Obama did it outside, right, and getting dozens and dozens of CNN stories, or uh, YouTube drafting off the back of the Lazy Sunday um, video. For some of you who are the right generation, may remember YouTube went from kind of an unknown to a known off that, right. So there's these different things you can do to help the world catch up, and then um, ultimately, once you've changed the rate of growth. What can you do to maintain this growth over time? And this, so you guys know, because you all have a copy of the book now, this basically is the book. So there's a chapter on any of these if they're interesting to you. Um, but the, the three phases, which I think are, are the thing that I wanted to hit in a, in a quick overview, right? You've got these prerequisites. How do you satisfy those? And so I would, one way to think about this is just like you can't do calculus before you do algebra, right? You can't focus on scaling until you've satisfied these first four prerequisites. Then how do you help the world catch up with that vision that you have, right? These are the catalyzing events. And then once the world's caught up and the, and the rate of growth starts to take off quickly, what can you do to maintain and support that rate of growth over time? So um, that was super fast. That was basically two years of research in 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> got a couple more minutes? Okay, cool. So I've got a couple more minutes. Um, so let me, just, let me just walk through these four quickly and and then we'll go to we'll go to Q and A. So I'll walk through each of these four catalyzing events. So double double trigger events. The idea here is, what event is going on that's larger or bigger than the than your product or service, right? So um, if I let me ask, let's see, this is an interesting crowd to see if this will know or not. So if I say where did Twitter launch, what would you answer? This is sort of the reverse Q and A. Um, so most people would say. Twitter launched at South by Southwest, and um, so that's kind of the common story, right? It turns out that Twitter had been around for about 10 months before South by Southwest, but what happened at South by Southwest, right, was it was this event that made a lot of people aware of the service Twitter, right? So it changed people's awareness of it. So it's events that are larger than 
the company itself, the people draft off of. We're investors in a company called NoWait. A lot of you guys probably use NoWait just being in Pittsburgh, right? So when we were first investing in NoWait, one of the questions we had was, how can we quickly see if there are network effects around the service, right? So if you have a bunch of people using the NoWait app in the same place, how can you sort of create network effects around that? And so what we did to sort of do our own version of a double trigger event is we went to the Masters in Augusta, Georgia, and we actually had them um, all that we had 52 restaurants in Augusta, Georgia use the NoAid app because it turns out that for 51 weeks out of the year, there are like no nice restaurants in Augusta. And then for one week out of the year, uh, all these restaurants that aren't that nice have tons and tons of people. So I, the busiest restaurant in America during the Masters every year is like a TGI Fridays. Um, and so you, you've, you've literally like Carly Fiorina, the CEO of HP at the time, sitting with a hockey puck pager in her hand waiting for a table at the Masters, right? Or waiting for a table at, in Augusta, Georgia, right? So we put No Wade in there. Um, some of you actually may know him because I know there's some people here. So anybody know Evan Adams? Just curious, no? Okay, yeah, a couple of you in the back. So Evan actually, we shipped him to Augusta for a month. I, I think he enjoyed it, but we shipped him to Augusta for a month, and he basically went from restaurant to restaurant, signing up all these locations. And then what happened is every restaurant executive in America goes to Augusta to check on their restaurant during the Masters because they also get to watch a golf tournament while they're there. And, uh, and then they all went back and started talking about this application, No Way. Right? So this is an event that's larger than No Way, but allows them to sort of draft into that story and change the slope of the line or change the growth that they're going through. Um, similarly, sometimes there are platforms you can draft off of, right? So if you think about um, how many of you, if you didn't become aware of YouTube via Lazy Sunday, you probably became aware of YouTube via MySpace. Those were sort of the two common paths at the early growth, right? And, and what happened there, right, is that people on the MySpace platform wanted to put videos on their page. MySpace didn't provide that functionality natively, and so YouTube, not only did they put it out there, but they made it easy for you to see how to put it when you observed it on somebody else's page, easy how to see it and add it to yours, right? So that's a drafting off a platform. Uh, the, the other two that we talk about are, are a little bit more, it's a little bit more math behind them, but like one of them is figuring out how to take the friction out of people telling people about products, right? So viral growth, how do you, how do you get customers to tell other customers about your product or service, right? Which is not a new thing at all. People have been telling people about products long before Mark Zuckerberg was born, right? But what is new is our ability to, to watch how many people tell people about it and then make it as friction free as possible. So there's this whole sort of turning it into a math problem that's a relatively new thing. Similarly, Right? There's, a, there's a different type of math problem you can do, which is people discover your product or service via some kind of product recommendation or, or engine driving recommendation. So like Google search results, app store results, things like that. Right? And you can do things to put your thumb on the scale and have your uh, service become more aware, especially when a new tool is driving a lot of those recommendations. Right? So 10 years ago, you could make a lot of money understanding the Google search algorithms better than anybody else. And like three years ago, you can make a lot of money understanding the App Store recommendations better than anybody else. And without a doubt, in you know a couple of years from now, there'll be another. I mean, there's a bunch of interesting things that could be that right now. But you want to be watching where are these customers coming from, and how can you again change the slip of the line? Because the whole idea here is once you've satisfied these prerequisites, what can you do to 
rapidly accelerate your people's awareness of your product or service. So I think that's a quick overview. We'll do questions and then um, and then you guys can we'll do books and go watch the game. So. everyone thank you so much for listening to sean's talk on his new book the science of growth again if you'd like to purchase a copy of sean's book listen to our interviews with him find ways to connect with him you can find all of that in the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 104 and again uh, the talk didn't end here we also had a question and answer session with sean and you can listen to that in episode number 105 on the podcast again if you've been listening to the podcast for a while it really really helps us if you could leave a rating and review on itunes so thank you for doing that. If you want to stay up with everything we're doing with L3 Leadership or connect with us, you can simply go to l3leadership.org and sign up for our email list and you'll get consistent emails telling you what we're up to uh, as well as added content as well. As always, I like to close with a quote and I'm going to close with a quote by Sean because I thought it was phenomenal. And he said, entrepreneurs create the world the way it ought to be. I love that. Entrepreneurs create the world the way it ought to be. And I just want to encourage you to go do that. Uh, Create the world you think it ought to be, and uh, the world will be a better place as a result. So thank you so much for listening and being a part of L3 Leadership. We'll talk to you next episode. My wife, Laura, and I appreciate you so much. Have a great day.